What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words. So listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast. And as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Welcome to another episode of A Million Other Choices. I am your hostess, Kim. I have a case for you today that is from Richmond, BC. I didn't find too much coverage on it in the way of podcasts, so it's one that you might not know about. Uh, unless you're from Richmond, of course. I'm trying to spread the cases out and try to make sure that I cover at least one case from every province. If you're waiting for one from like the Yukon, Northwest Territories, and Nunavut area, I do have some that I'm looking into, but they're all really recent, like they're still going through the court process. So you might have to wait a little bit for those ones, but I have not forgotten about you. Today, this is the murder of Gladys Wakabayash. A major source for this story was Catherine Fogarty from Story Hunters. Uh, particularly in regards to the Mr. Big stings here in Canada, but also on this case specifically. She did an investigative piece on it in December of 2021. There was also an anonymous blog called Not So Sleepy Jean that is dedicated specifically to this case. Gladys Wakabayash is the daughter of Y.S. Mayo. He was the chairman of the Union Petro- Petrochemical Corporation and Lien Hawaii. I think it, 
think that's how you say it. Lian Y Industrial Corp. So he was a billionaire. I couldn't find any recent information on him. He was not listed in the Forbes 2020 list of billionaires. So he's either maybe no longer a billionaire or he is no longer alive. I'm not sure. You would think there would be just a ton of information about him being that he's, I mean, he was probably a public figure, but I just couldn't find a lot of information on him. Gladys was his third child, and I believe there were five children altogether. One of uh, Gladys's brothers was also living here in Canada. She moved, uh, Gladys moved to Canada in 1976 to study piano. She got married to Shinji Wakabayash in 1978. He was from Japan originally, and he was the manager for Japan Airlines. Together, they had a daughter named Alyssa. Their marriage was not turbulent at all, but they did have some cultural differences with Gladys being Taiwanese and Shinji being Japanese. So in April of 1991, they separated, but it was amicable. Gladys kept their home in Vancouver's Shaughnessy neighborhood. It was actually in the 6800 block of Selkirk. It was a 4,800 square foot, like kind of a mansion. It was an apartment, but also like, like just extremely, it's described as palatial. But they continued after their separation to have a friendship and worked really well together as co-parents for Alyssa's benefit. On Wednesday, June 24th, 1992, at 8.45, 41-year-old Gladys drove her daughter to school which was the normal routine. She then returned home and was seen by a neighbor pulling into the garage at around 9 o'clock in the morning. At 10.30, Edward Parker, who was her piano teacher, tried to call the house because for the first time, like, ever, she had missed a piano lesson, so he was concerned and just sort of wanted to know what was going on. At 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Alyssa walked out of her school expecting to see her mom's car waiting with the other parents, but she wasn't there, thinking that she was maybe just running late. She, she actually waited, and she, she tried to call. She didn't get an answer, and finally, after waiting a full two hours, she called her dad, Shinji, and he came to pick her up, and they drove back to the house on Selkirk. They arrived there about 5.30 p.m. They both noticed that the back door was unlocked, and this was unusual because, I mean, they were rather diligent about locking their doors, especially when you have a lot of expensive stuff, you lock your doors, um, even when they were home. Shinji called for her, like called out her name and got nothing. And when he went upstairs to her bedroom, thinking, you know, maybe she was sick, she wasn't feeling well, he entered the bedroom and Gladys was lying on, like, in the doorway of her bedroom closet, which I would imagine would be more like a small dressing room than what, you know, I would consider a closet. Gladys was lying. She was laying face up. Shinji said, quote, I saw a big cut on her leg. I, I tried to push her left arm. I felt something wasn't right. She also had a large gash on her neck, blood had pooled in a thick layer soaking the carpet underneath her. 
He tried to call 911, but he wasn't able to make a connection. And I'm not sure if it was busy or if he was just panicking and, and it just wasn't working for him. So he was completely hysterical. He ran next door with Alyssa to Gladys's brother's place. And Alyssa said, quote, he was very, very, very upset and difficult to understand. But he told me what had happened, end quote. When the police arrived, they found very little in the way of evidence, such as like fingerprints or a weapon. But what they noticed was that a very sharp instrument had been used to slash Gladys's throat, which had caused her to bleed to death. But there were other slashes, like more shallow slashes on her legs or chest. And she also had some defensive wounds a blood splatter analyst determined that she had been in a seated position on the floor when she was killed. And obviously the police knew immediately that this was a rage kill and was not a random attack. So she had definitely known the person that killed her and she had been targeted, but they didn't know why. Nothing had been disturbed or taken. There was no sign of any robbery and Gladys, she was a wealthy woman, obviously. She had many expensive items and jewelry in her bedroom and that wasn't touched. So the only clue that they did find as to who could have been involved came in the form of a single shoe print in the bathroom on the ceramic tile floor. The pattern on the sole of the shoe showed that it had a pointed toe and they knew that it had to have come from a high-heeled shoe. So they knew that a woman had either been there at the time of the murder or a man, I mean, small enough to fit a high-heeled shoe. So obviously the husband is always the first suspect, but they had been very friendly with each other. They couldn't find a motive. There was no issues. And even Alyssa herself had said that they didn't fight a lot. Um, She was quoted as saying, quote, they just had cultural differences that couldn't be resolved, end quote. So, next up, they start looking for a secret life. Gladys did have a short-term relationship with a man living in Chilliwack shortly after the separation from Shinji, but that had also ended on a friendly note. They discover on her phone answering machine, because this was before cell phones, uh, there was a few messages, and some were from her friend Jean James, but others from a man that suggested some intimacy. Things like, hi love, just me, Saturday night, I was just calling, thank you, bye. And another one from the same male voice saying, hi darling, it's me, I'll call you back sometime, don't call me, I'll call you. So they asked Shinji, like, do you recognize this man's voice? And he said, yeah, that's my friend Derek James, Jean's husband, and they're like friends of theirs. So why would Gladys's best friend's husband be calling Gladys and calling her darling? That's strange. Or not. Derek and Jean and James were unlikely friends for Shinji and Gladys. I mean, they, Gladys and Shinji, of course, lived in their posh Shaughnessy neighborhood. And, and um, Derek and Jean, of course, just lived in like a regular middle-class neighborhood. But Alyssa and Derek and Jean's son, Adam, had gone to the same school and they had some things in common with their careers. Derek was an air traffic controller and Jean had been a flight attendant for Pacific Western. 
So the couples together had kind of started a friendship in 1985 um, at an after-school event that the, where they had met. And so they often were at each other's homes for dinner parties, social gatherings, and spent a lot of time together. And, and they continued to be friends after Shinji and um, Gladys's divorce. Derek and Jean had been married since 1968. Jean was originally from the UK, where she had trained as a nurse before coming to Canada. In 1991, Jean and Derek were in their early 50s. Derek and Jean, uh, they were both um, animal lovers, avid gardeners, the usual suburban, you know, bird feeders, stuff like that. They would always decorate their house with elaborate Christmas decorations and were described by a neighbor, and Jean was described by a neighbor as she's an absolute sweetheart of a lady. Of course, police discovered that not all was rosy in the James's household. They were having some issues. Jean had her suspicions that Derek was having an affair. She had gone so far, actually, as to try and follow him using a friend's car so as not to be spotted, but she wasn't able to confirm anything. So in June 1991, which was only a couple of days before Gladys's death, Derek went to Toronto for a business trip, and Jean used some of her connections with friends to actually pull the hotel phone records from his room, and of course whose number should come up on it but Gladys's. And of course only two days after she discovered this, Gladys was dead. So police figure, like a macabre version of Cinderella, find the woman that fits the shoe, find the killer. So they got a search warrant and searched through Jean's vast shoe collection, but they could not find a match to the print that was left at the scene. Fingerprints, of course, that they found weren't really helpful because Jean fully admitted to having been in Jean's bedroom on numerous occasions. I mean, they were pretty much best friends after all, so that wasn't unusual. But something else had made them suspicious of Jean. Two days after the killing, she tracked Shinji down at the Pan Pacific Hotel in Vancouver where he was staying while the house was being processed. And Shinji said, quote, She told me, I've been looking for you and asked what had happened. I told her I can't say anything just yet. After I explained that to her, she said, Yes, I understand and hung up he thought that was a little bit strange just that that she would call out of the blue like that but I mean not really though because she was also a good friend of Gladys's but two days after that she saw Shinji again they were both visiting Gladys's mom and Shinji had said quote she asked me how Gladys was killed I told her I can't really explain much but I told her I saw her laying on her back face upward and there was a cut on her neck so one thing I know about true friends when you're going through something like what of course Shinji and Alyssa were going through they give you space they say you know like please let me know if I can do anything or you need to talk they don't ask you a bunch of questions about how the person was murdered what their body looked like and what the police know or don't know at least not four days later and they usually at least will offer their condolences before asking about the gruesome details so police set up surveillance of Jean, and they, they took the unusual step of releasing a number of details about the case to the media. 
Their hope here was that it would kind of shake Dean up a little bit, that they knew so much. And a reward was also offered, but they wound up with nothing. nothing, Nothing that could connect Gene to the crime. Gladys's brother, who lived next door, moved with Alyssa back to Taiwan. His grief was just too much to continue living in the city where his sister had been really brutally murdered. And despite the investigators being really sure that they knew who had killed Gladys... Um, the case went cold because they just didn't have enough information, or they just didn't have enough evidence to take to bring Gene in. Fifteen years later, in 2007, cold case detectives with the RCMP's Unsolved Homicide Unit reopened the case and they of course re-interviewed the witnesses went through all the case files and determined of course that gene was the most likely suspect they had dna in 2007 but um they there was no dna at the scene that they would have been able to match so what they really felt they needed was a confession so they did the famous mr big sting which was originally started by RCMP in BC and has become known kind of around the world as the Canadian approach. Uh, I have, of course, talked about Mr. Big Stings before. They have been used in about 350 cases across Canada, and they surprisingly work a great deal of the time. So what they do is they use an undercover officer or officer's And they actually spend a great deal of time watching the person, getting to know their habits and and everything sneaky that they can. They want to build a very customized approach because, you know, what works to motivate one person to confess might not work on somebody else. So they um, usually use some kind of ruse to help start building a relationship with the person and then slowly start to reveal that they're they're part of this underground crime syndicate and that they too can become a part of it. All they have to do is, you know, maybe make a delivery here or count some cash and then they get paid very generously to do that. And once they have them sort of lured in and hooked by the money, then they can start offering like higher payments for different kinds of works. But of course, there's one condition. This crime boss, the Mr. Big, has to know you're a trustworthy person and can be honest. So you have to tell them something that you've done. And I mean, how else are they going to know that you can keep a secret? And lots of times they completely fall for it and they spill the beans on their own crimes. Voila, confession. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. So, Jean received a call in January of 2008 that she had won a day at the spa. And she was actually picked up in a limo. And there was a companion with her, and another lucky winner, who of course was an undercover, undercover cop. And they start talking. She said she was the wife of a developer. And suddenly Jean has a new friend and invited her for a wine tasting. And they just very soon became inseparable. And so, of course, slowly this friend started to talk about her, you know, sort of criminal background. And two months later, she said she was, they were out somewhere and she said, oh, I just have to deliver a package. And she showed her some cash that she was supposed to deliver to somebody. And so, so Jean, of course, starts to know that uh, this friend of hers now is into something shady. And of course, she wants in. So one time she had her uh, keep watch while she, this other undercover officer met with someone and she wound up getting $300 for doing that. So, of course, she was hooked and she was actually quite heartless about it and thought that this was just great. And during one of the scenarios in which the undercover cops kind of staged a kidnapping, they asked Jean, like, what do you think we should do with him? And she said, quote, cut his knackers off. Jean also told undercover cops that she had no conscience as, and was willing to do anything that they wanted her to do. At the end of the operation, James is told that there's this big score in which she, ha- can, she has an opportunity to share in $700,000 for basically helping commit crime that's unspecified. So she flew to Montreal to the Intercontinental Hotel and met with five men and so this was supposed to be like a job interview with the big wigs one of the guys said oh she, you know i don't think that she can cut it so she told him about her days as a nurse and all the things that she'd seen then so then they they said oh well you know according to the papers here you were actually a suspect in the murder so word was you were involved and were you now, I'm not going to read the transcript word for word because it's like 90 minutes long and I, of course, don't have a British accent to make it sound authentic, but I'll do my best to convey basically what she said. She said, she was a lady, a friend of mine. She was screwing around with my husband. I did a lot of digging and I found out. I was furious. I wasn't going to put up with this nonsense anymore. This is strictly between you and I, right? I have never told anybody. She's then asked if she got anyone else to do it for her because that wouldn't then be hands-on, so it's not the same as killing someone yourself. And she says, never. Uh, When asked what she did, she says, I slit her throat. I was trying to get some more information out of her. I did a few other cuts before I cut her throat. What did you do with the knife? 
I didn't use a knife. I used a box cutter. I took it to the other side of town. I threw it in the metal dumpster where they used to dump metal for recycling. And all of the clothes that I had, I took them and there was an incinerator at the school and I threw them all in there. She says she parked her car about five blocks from the house and when she arrived, she walked to the house and then later traded in the car and got rid of it. The undercover cop says, quote, well, well, like I say, she sort of got what she had coming, right? And Jean said, from my point of view, she did, yes. I was sneaky about it. She thought I was giving her a surprise. And we were upstairs, she was sitting in her closet, and I was going to show her this necklace so that she had her back to me, and I put gloves on, so I mean there's no DNA. I pretended to put the necklace on around her neck. She just had fell on the floor and was saying that she was sorry, this sort of thing, and was pushing her foot against me. And then I said to her, you tell me the truth and I'll call you an ambulance, which of course I had no intention of doing anyway, and that was it. And you stabbed her then a few more times? Well, I did, because I was trying to get her to admit how long it had gone on and things. I was just after information. So, on December 12, 2008, a shocked and dismayed Jean Ann James was arrested at her house. The trial started in October of 2011... Um, overseen by Madam Justice Catherine Bruce. The first witness was Larry Peters, and he he just described that there was a massive amount of blood at the scene and that they, it had obviously been indicative of rage. Mern McKinnon also testified, another officer, that it was one of the most gruesome murders that he'd ever encountered and that it had to be somebody that she trusted enough to let her into the bedroom. Now, of course, the defense asked if they ever considered any other suspects, and Shinji, of course, had been ruled out. He had told the police that Jean had been calling him, asking about her injuries. Um, They said they did briefly consider maybe the Chinese mafia or something, but really what the defense wanted is they wanted that confession ignored, saying that it was elicited under duress, um, that she felt pressured to sort of be a part of this thing and to whatever so she lied about it now that has happened sometimes where somebody will confess because they want to be part of this crime syndicate and these mr big operations but it doesn't happen very often and one of the other things the defense said is that she in her confession she never actually revealed any holdback evidence but remember, there really wasn't a lot of holdback evidence because the police had kind of been forced to release a lot of the details many years before trying to rattle her. On November 4th, she in 2011, she was found guilty after eight hours of deliberation for first-degree murder. At the time, she was completely stone-faced throughout the entire proceedings. She did not react at all to her conviction. The family... Um, Gladys's sister-in-law, Susanna Yang, said, We would like to extend our gratitude to everybody who contributed so much and helped us so much. She thanked the Vancouver police, the RCMP, and the judge and the jury for doing what she called a wonderful job. We just think that the justice system works, even after this amount of time, that something like this can come to fruition, that the long arm of the law is a true statement. That was from Gladys's son-in-law. It doesn't stop if a crime is committed, justice is going to be served. For her to have the life that she's had for the last 19 years, knowing what was in her history, it's obviously a huge vindication for us. 
And uh, Susanna Yang, Gladys' sister-in-law, said that the last 19 years had been very difficult, but the family had never given up. And, of course, Jean appealed, which was denied in January of 2013. Um, In the appeal, Jean's lawyers argued that the trial judge had erred in admitting the opinions of the police that the partial shoe print that they found at the murder scene appeared to be this high-heeled shoe. They also contended that the B.C. Supreme Court Justice Catherine Bruce had failed to give um, proper instructions, basically, to the jury about some of the evidence of Jean's character. But in the ruling that uh, was released, it was a three-member appeal court panel found that the trial judge in that case had actually her instructions to the jury had been sufficient that they had covered anything regarding bad character statements and uh, the shoe print evidence fell within what they consider lay opinion evidence. So it was admissible. So Um, they did concede that it was an error for the trial judge not to correct um, the prosecutor's suggestion that the print may have been genes, but the mistake was harmless, they said. The evidence of motive and opportunity together with the detailed confession formed an overwhelming foundation on which a conviction could be based. That is from BC Court of Appeal Chief Justice Lance Finch. Uh, He wrote that in his reasons for the judgment and continues, I would affirm the verdict of guilty and dismiss the appeal. And the two other judges on the panel, which were Justice Peter Lowry and Justice Daphne Smith, also agreed that the appeal should be dismissed. In 2015, Jean would have been 76. She started asking for a federal review because Fraser Valley Institution, where she was living, was refusing private visits with her son and her husband. Um, Her husband and her son actually remained supportive of her as they felt that she had been tricked into confessing to this crime that, of course, she did not commit, in their opinion. At the review board, which was at that time presided over by Justice James Russell, the court found a few interesting things about Jean's time in prison, which they used to deny her any private visits, starting with the very fact that her husband and son, Adam, believed that she was innocent and was tricked into confessing, which they classified as an area of concern. So Justice Russell said in part, the onus is on Mrs. James to take responsibility for her offending and address her contributing factors. However, it is dressed up. Jean is not dealing with the fundamental issue at the heart of the case, and that she had a high need for improvement in matters pertaining to her attitude, emotions, and her marriage. Instead of following this advice, Jean has come to the court in an attempt to sidestep the recommendations of the professionals involved with her incarceration and reintegration. She would prefer to use the legal system to avoid the programming which which the professionals say she needs. File information indicates that Ms. James can be volatile when angry, and she has allegedly been observed throwing things at her husband in a state of rage. File information also indicated that Ms. James' husband stayed at the marital re- stayed in the marital relationship as he was afraid of Ms. James, that is, he was scared to leave her. Jean has refused to take any specific programs behind bars to help her, and as a result, Russell ruled that 
the prison authorities, they had to consider her a high risk for violence, despite the fact that she denied any involvement in any violence. The Correctional Service Report, which was actually written by Brennan Bannon, who was a correctional officer, on which Russell based his decision, is due to what Bannon considered the potential for domestic violence and allegations that Jean once actually tampered with prison food and had tried to contract out the assault of some other prisoners. And Jean, of course, denies all the allegations against her. So in Brennan's report, he had also written that she would benefit from private visits because they would allow positive family contact that would bring purpose to Ms. James' life while potentially motivating her to address her contributing factors. But the report ultimately recommended against the visits because of the allegations about her time in prison and that she might be an, also an escape risk because, um, quote, James also allegedly made inquiries about obtaining a false passport. Ms. James will be 94 and 97 when she reaches her day, day and full parole eligibility dates, respectively. In the writer's opinion, this may increase Ms. James' escape risk as she may have to spend the rest of her life in prison, but conceded, of course, that the likelihood of her successfully scaling the fence and evading perception was pretty low. Jean, for her end, responded to her court documents, responded in her court documents, I have never planned nor attempted to escape from Fraser Valley Institute. She was mostly upset about the comments about the potential for family violence and said, I have never been involved in violence towards my husband or my son. My husband and son are the most important people in my life and I love them deeply and would never do anything to compromise their safety, let alone intentionally hurt either one of them. Her husband, Derek, also told prison officials that there had never been any violence in their relationship and he claimed that a mutual family member had actually pointed a finger at his wife to take attention away from himself. Throughout all of this, Derek James, for his part, has denied having a physical affair with Gladys, but did admit to an emotional affair. If she is still alive today, she's 83 and still in prison. And that, my friends, was the stunning murder investigation into the death of Gladys Wakabayash. Oh, and I read a few of the comments on that anonymous blog, Not So Sleepy Jean, and some of them were downright shocking and terrible, saying that Gladys deserved what she got for sleeping with another man's husband. But I know that my listeners are a hundred times better than that, and we all know that no one deserves to be murdered. Well, maybe Hitler. Stalin and maybe like the Night Stalker, but not anyone that makes an unethical choice in life. Otherwise, we'd all be murdered. Just saying. Please come back again next week. I think next week I'm due for a bit of a break soon. I've got my year end coming in my regular life, but I'm not sure when that's going to be. So I, I think you think you should join me again next week or whenever I'm back if it's not next week. As always, thanks so much for listening and do not forget to t- tell your friends how amazing my podcast is.
What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.